But over the past few weeks, we've been studying in the book of Ezekiel chapter one, verses one through 14. And we've learned about the making of the minister Ezekiel. As he is engrossed by the vision of the cherubim, these ministering spirits. Ezekiel's description of these mighty angels of God communicate majesty on a scale that most of us have never seen. They're glorious creatures. And they're worthy to be emulated by Ezekiel. They're worthy to be emulated. And you would think that after seeing such an amazing, glorious sight that it just couldn't get any better than that. Creatures with four wings and four faces, with human hands and calves' feet. You would think that it couldn't get any bigger, any greater than that, but there is one who is greater still. And in verses 22 through 28 of chapter one, we're introduced to this one. As Ezekiel is staring at these cherubim, he notices that there is an expanse above their heads. And as he looks into the expanse above their heads, he beholds a figure in heaven. He can see someone. This figure in heaven who resembles the appearance of a man seated on the throne. But this doesn't appear to be an ordinary man. Ezekiel says that the upper half from the waist above appeared to be gleaming metal, metal, and his lower half from his waist down appeared to be on fire. This was not an ordinary man. Not only that, but surrounding this mysterious man, there appeared to be what Ezekiel tries to describe as a rainbow around him. What a glorious sight. This was a glorious man. More glorious by far than the cherubim or the seraphim or any other being Ezekiel has ever witnessed. This one who is like or appears as a man. I'm sure the cherubim kind of spooked Ezekiel when he first saw them. It had to be rather a dramatic experience for him. But upon beholding this special man, upon beholding the glory of the Lord, upon experiencing the force and the awesomeness of the majesty of God, Ezekiel says in chapter one, verse 28, when I saw it, I fell on my face.
But why? Why did Ezekiel fall on his face at the appearance of the Lord? He didn't fall on his face when he saw the cherubim. They were quite frightening, I'm sure. They were quite majestic, but he didn't fall on his face for them. Why did Ezekiel fall on his face at the appearance of the Lord? Does he fall on his face out of reverence for God? Maybe. Does he fall on his face to worship? Does Ezekiel fall on his face because the weight of the power of God has made him weak in his knees? Or does Ezekiel fall to his face out of a paralyzing fear? I believe that Ezekiel fell on his face because he was afraid of God. Tradition said that anyone who saw the face of God would surely die. I believe that Ezekiel fell on his face because he was afraid of God. Now we understand, we understand from scripture that we are called to fear God. It's one of the most important things we must do is to fear God. Psalms 111 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But in the Bible, this word fear can mean several things. This word fear can refer to the terror that one feels in a frightening situation. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 25. This word to fear can mean to respect in the way a servant is to fear his master. As in Joshua chapter 24 verse 14. The Hebrew word for fear can also be defined as the reverence or awe a person feels in the presence of greatness. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. The fear of the Lord can mean one of these things, or the fear of the Lord can be a combination of all of these. And while all of us, both saint and sinner, while all of us are called to fear God, I want to make the observation this morning that saints and sinners are not called to fear God in the same way. The unbeliever should fear God because of God's power to punish his sin. The unbeliever should fear God because of God's pending judgment on his lifestyle. And Jesus Christ himself recommends this kind of fear for everyone who lives a sinful lifestyle. He instructs them in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 and says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. Be terrified of him. Every person who is living a lifestyle of sin should have that kind of fear of God. They are to fear his pending judgment and because of their fear they should look to amend their ways. This kind of fear that Jesus describes here, this kind of fear, this kind of dread is born out of a self 
awareness. As I compare my sinful lifestyle to God's holy person and to God's holy standard, I am aware of my own sinful lifestyle. I am aware that my lifestyle is not conducive to the word or the standard of God and I should fear because God will judge. The believer should also fear God. The children of God should also fear God. But our fear of God does not originate from a self-awareness. Stay with me. The essence of the believer's fear of God differs in quality from the fear that the unbeliever has for God. Because our fear of God is born out of awareness of the weightiness of the love of God for us. Our fear of God is born out of the awe and the wonder of his glory and of his majesty. It's a different kind of fear. It's a different quality of fear. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 through 29 describes it for us. This is what the fear of, the, of God looks like for the believer. The writer writes, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and with awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's not a paralyzing kind of fear. <laughs> that is a fear of reverence and respect. That is not a paralyzing, intimidating kind of fear. The believer's fear of God should lead us to be grateful. All fear of God should inspire us to serve him, to revere him, to stand in awe and amazement at his wonder, like we did this morning as we sang those songs. Our fear of God causes us to be lifted up to the highest heights and to commune with him. And sometimes when we fear God in this way, we too fall upon our own faces. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 11, the Bible says that all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they all fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. This is the same kind of fear of God that the children of God are to have. Reverence and worship. Revelation chapter 11 verse 16, the Bible says the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Even the children of God fall on our faces as well, but not out of terror, but out of awe, out of reverence, out of wonder. In both of these instances, in Revelation and in many other places in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, believers fell on their faces in worship of God. And most of the time, God does not tell them to stand up. He allows them to bow before him and to give service and worship to his name. He doesn't tell them to stand up. Because their worship is appropriate because it originates from an awareness of the glory and the worthiness of God. It's appropriate in that instance. But Ezekiel's fear is of a different quality. Ezekiel's fear does not originate from his awareness of God, but out of his awareness of himself. 
Stay with me on this. So that instead of being drawn toward Christ by the magnetism of his goodness, Ezekiel is being repelled away from God as he shrinks back in self-disgust. Isaiah had a very similar visceral response to the glory and the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. Then he said, woe to me, Isaiah has seen this vision of God, and he says, woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me, trouble for me, because I've seen the face of God. That ought not be the cry of the children of God, that when we see the face of God that we are ruined. Isaiah says, I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. That's why. Woe to me, or I am in so much trouble because God has come calling and I am yet in my sin. Which means that Isaiah apparently had a reason to have this sense of fear of judgment. This means that apparently Isaiah had some unconfessed sin in his own life. And we can surmise that that must have been the case by the scripture itself. Because in response to Isaiah's cry, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. In response to Isaiah's cry of dread and fear, an angel of the Lord does something in verse 6 of that chapter. The Bible says that one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched Isaiah's mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for your sin. Apparently, Isaiah had some sin in his life. He said it himself. And in response, this angel came and helped him find reconciliation with God. So, so, so Isaiah's fear was appropriate because as he confesses himself, he had sin in his life. And by that we mean that, mean that Isaiah was apparently practicing some sin. Now, let me say this. If you are a believer who is practicing sin, then you too should fear God in this terrifying way. No question about it. If you are a child of God and you are, I'm not saying a child of God who is just sinning. I'm saying that if you are a child of God who is practicing or living a lifestyle of sin, you have reason to be terrified of God in the same way. Because the Bible says that when you sin and you are a child of God, you crucify the Lord Jesus Christ afresh. You build again the things that you have torn down. You have reason to be terrified if you are a child of God who is practicing, not just sinning, but practicing a lifestyle of sin. You have need to fall down on your face before God in repentance and with fear. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ who strives with all you have against sin, 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ who leans on the power of the Holy Spirit in resistance to sin. And if you are a believer who though you may sin, you get back up and you make short accounts and you seek prompt confession and repentance, then you don't need to fear God in this paralyzing way. And I say that for a reason. I say that because too many believers fear God in that terrifying way, that way that causes paralysis. Too many believers fear God in that way. Far too many of us have a visceral fear of God that repels us away from God instead of drawing us closer to him. And it's not because we're practicing sin. But we have this dread of God, not because we are aware of any unconfessed sin in our lives, but we are aware of something else. So the question is, why do we fear God in that paralyzing way? I am convinced that many Jesus followers fear God in this unhealthy way because we harbor an unhealthy disdain for our own selves. We harbor a disdain that does not have its origins in Jesus Christ. And this kind of self-disdain does not serve the interests of God or of his kingdom. Even though to people it may look like humility, even though to people it may look like meekness. But any fear that keeps me from being able to freely serve God does not find its origins in the spirit of God. In fact, self-disdain accomplishes the exact opposite. Self-disdain leads to spiritual paralysis where even though you're trying your very best, you can't seem to make any progress in your journey toward Jesus Christ. Self-disapproval forces us to shrink back from doing the work of God because we're plagued by feelings of insecurity, irrelevance, and a general sense of incompetence that we allow to convince us that nothing, that we have nothing of any value to offer the kingdom. And so we do nothing for God. Out of an unhealthy and unbiblical fear, We fall on our faces like every other child of God, as if to worship him. But in our hearts we know that it is not true worship. Because our hearts are not fixed upon the glory of the Lord. Rather, our eyes are trained on the haunting sense of our own low self-worth. And our devaluation of our own selves causes us to always approach the throne of God apologetically and not boldly. To always approach the throne of God as if we're a parasite, as if we're a bother, and not confidently. Because we have a low idea and opinion of our own selves. 
as if we're worms, as if we're parasites who are undeserving of God's affection or attention. But you should know today that if you have that problem, your self-deprecation is disagreeing with God's assessment of who you are. And as far as God is concerned, your opinion of yourself is not the truth. And so our low sense of self-worth becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and we thwart our own progress in the things of the Spirit. Ezekiel has fallen down on his face at the presence of God. He has deemed himself unworthy and therefore unable to stand in the presence of God. He has deemed himself incapable of being of any service to God. He falls before God not out of a sense of sinfulness but out of a sense of unworthiness. And look at what God says to him. And this is how you know that that was inappropriate. Had it been appropriate for Ezekiel to fall down on his face like that, God would have let him just stay there. No, no, no. This is inappropriate. What does God say to him? Son of man, stand on your feet. <laughs> That's not the right kind of fear. That kind of fear that's debilitating and paralyzing, that's not coming for me. I don't come to my children to intimidate them, to coerce them, to push them around. That's not coming for me. That's coming from you, Ezekiel. I don't need that kind of fleshly subservience. Those who worship the Father worship him in spirit and in truth. Out of a spiritual liberty and not of so, out of some low sense of self-worth. Stand on your feet. He says to him, it is not a sin to be human. Son of man, human, stand on your feet. It's not a sin to be a human. It is only a sin if you yield to your fallen humanity. Son of man, stand on your feet. It is not a crime to be inadequate. It is a mistake to assume that God cannot use inadequate people. Son of man, stand on your feet. Because the truth is that no human is adequate to the task of speaking on behalf of God. No one is worthy to be a minister. And yet though we are all inadequate for the work that God has called us to, yet through Jesus Christ we are and we will be triumphant to accomplish the work of the Lord in the world. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 through 17. He says, thanks be to God. Hmm. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, he revealed the fragrance of the knowledge of God in every place. Listen to what he says we are. He says that we, children of God, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That's who we are, Paul says. This is how Paul understands the minister to be. He says that the minister is led by God 
He says that the minister is the fragrance of Jesus Christ himself. But the self-loathing saint, the self-deprecating saint, thinks that this only applies to other believers and not to himself. Maybe the pastor is a fragrance of Christ to God. Maybe missionaries on the mission field are, are, are a fragrance of, of Christ to God. Maybe Billy Graham, maybe Tony Evans, maybe the Sunday school teacher is a fragrance of Christ to God, but not me. I'm unworthy. I'm inadequate. I'm irrelevant. Maybe somebody else. The fact of the matter is that none of them, not Billy, not Tony, not your Sunday school teacher, not the missionary, none of them are any more worthy to carry the water of the Spirit any more than you are. None of us are worthy. And that is what Paul says next in the latter portion of verse 16. Again, he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us reveals the fragrance of the knowledge of God in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And then he asked the question, but who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate to be a fragrance of Christ? Who is worthy of that privilege? Certainly not me, Paul says. I don't know anybody who's worthy to carry this fragrance, this aroma of Jesus Christ to the world. Who is adequate? This is a rhetorical question, of course to which any person who answers truthfully has to reply that no one is worthy to be a minister. Good morning, ministers. I don't think I'm a minister, so I'm not gonna say good morning because I'm not worthy to be a, and I'm not either. Nobody else that you know is worthy. Who is adequate for these things? Paul says, for we are not like many who are peddling the word of God. And he insinuates here by this remark that many of the people who are peddling the word of God are doing so not out of a sense of brokenness, but from their own displaced sense of self-sufficiency, their own self-delusion. In other words, many preachers, Paul is saying, many Christian leaders, Paul is saying, many pastors preach Jesus Christ because they believe themselves to be qualified to do so. What a mistake. You're not qualified to carry the water of the Spirit. They have the right credentials. They know the right people. They run in the proper circles. And this gives them confidence to speak for God. And this measure, this measure also happens to be the same measure by which the self-loathing Christian deems herself unworthy to be a minister. It is an unbiblical metric that carries no weight whatsoever in the kingdom of God. God calls who he wills. Whether the person feels he's qualified or not, whether the person feels he's adequate or not, God calls whom he wills. And when God calls you to be a minister, he does not take your insufficiency or your inadequacy into account. Your worthiness is not a part of God's equation when he calls you to speak for him or to serve on his behalf. He doesn't even care about how adequate you may be. Who you are 
who you think you are has no bearing upon God's choosing you to be a laborer in his vineyard. God chose you to be a minister the same way, by the same means that he called you into the kingdom. God has called you to be a minister by grace alone. You are not worthy. I am not worthy. Our election into the kingdom of God and our selection into the service of God is an act of grace alone. And therefore, as you ponder what God might have you to do, as you ponder what ministry God might have for you to fulfill, as you ponder to whom God may be sending you, don't waste your time considering your own adequacy or lack thereof. It plays no part in the equation. Paul continues to say in 2 Corinthians, verse 17, that the ministers of God are not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, meaning that the minister is sincere, and she is sincerely desiring to bring glory to God, but from sincerity. Paul says, and as from God, meaning that the source of our service is not to be sought or to be found in our own skill, in our own intellect, or in our own capacities. That the source of our strength and the source of our service is God himself. We're not like those who peddle the word of God and have confidence in their own flesh, but we serve out of sincerity and we have been sent from God we are not like the many peddling the word of God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. That is to say that we are accountable to God in Christ Jesus for all that we say and for all that we teach. Let's recap what Paul just said there. Paul is saying this, that the ministers of Jesus Christ recognize the fact that we are inadequate vessels. We already know that. And we place no confidence in ourselves, but our motives are sincere and our motives are right. The source of our ministry, the source of our sufficiency comes from God himself. And we serve under the authority and under the auspices of Jesus Christ our Lord. We speak Christ in the sight of God under his supervision. Hmm. We already recognize that we're inadequate. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we also understand that our worthiness or our unworthiness is not a factor in God's decision to use us. Hmm. Your opinion of yourself has nothing, little to nothing to do with God's choosing you to be a minister. So as God instructs Ezekiel here, stand on your feet. Get up from your low self-esteem. Rise up from your apologetic posture. Ignore the thoughts of disbelief that have no foundation in faith. Stand on your feet and prepare to receive God's direction for your life, God's direction for your ministry. Stand at attention and accept the responsibilities that God wants to give to you. I wish I could preach a message like that and everybody in the church would go out and find some ministry to do, some service to do, but I know it won't happen more than likely. Even as I'm saying these words, many are thinking to themselves, I'm not ready to stand up just yet. 
Maybe you're not convinced that you have anything to offer the church. Maybe you're not convinced that you have anything to offer the community or the world. But I am telling you that the fields of this world are ripe for harvest and that God is looking for laborers to send out into the vineyard. I am telling you that those who by faith will reject their own self-doubt, their own self-loathing, and their debilitating self-awareness, that God will grow them in their relationship with him. If they will stand on their feet, God said to Ezekiel, stand on your feet, never mind who you are, never mind what you are, never mind what you think you are, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. First stand on your feet, then we can talk. First stand on your feet, then we can have a conversation. I am not going to speak to you if you won't stand up. I don't need to speak to you if you won't accept the assignment that I am giving to you. We have nothing to talk about. You crave a closer relationship with me. You desire a closer walk with me. We all do. You want to know me better. You want to experience more of my joy, more of the gladness of the kingdom of God. That's what you want. But you don't want to stand up. You don't want to volunteer. You are unavailable for kingdom assignments, for kingdom work, for kingdom ministry. And therefore, even though you are a child of God, and even though you have been called by the name of God, you experience little of the holy in your life, and you will always be hampered on this side of heaven of building your relationship with God because you refuse to trust God beyond your own limitations. You refuse to move beyond your self-doubt and your self-loathing. You refuse to place your faith in Jesus Christ and stand up and accept your assignment. Brothers and sisters, if you will just stand up and overcome your fear, if you will just stand up, taking your eyes off of yourself and fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ who is worthy, then God will begin to speak to you. And as you continue to stand, God will speak to you more and more as you commit to serving him in whatever place and in whatever capacity he may call you to. Stand up. Raise your hand. And repeat after Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord, I am a wretch undone. I am inadequate and insufficient for the work. Send me. Here I am. Send me. We come to church on Sundays. We get our fellowship in. We check off the box for the week. We do our little Bible study through the week. Then we come back next Sunday and do the same thing over and over again. That was, not the, that was not the instruction that Jesus Christ left for us. Christ's instruction to us was to go. The church is not our house. The church is the place where we come to be equipped so that we can go. Stand up on your feet.
raise your hand. And repeat after Isaiah, here I am, God. Send me. What would you have me to do? Let's pray. Father, you have called us into your service. You have brought us into this world for such a time as this. A time of great turmoil, chaos, and confusion in the land. A time where broken and bruised people are all around us and the world is in need of healing, of peace, of joy. The world is in need of the smell of the sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ himself, the fragrance that you said that we are to be in the world. But sometimes, Father, we have to confess that we allow our own inadequacy and our own fear of not measuring up to the assignment to hold us back, to debilitate us, to give us pause. We confess that that kind of fear does not originate from you or from your kingdom, but from our own hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, give us the power to deny ourselves. Give us the ability to see beyond ourselves, our weaknesses, our idiosyncrasies, and our infirmities. To recognize that you, Lord Jesus Christ, live within us. Give us the capacity, the ability to yield to your Holy Spirit so that you and not we can do your work in the world. Help us to decrease. Help us to recognize, Lord God, that the work that you're calling us to is not by our own might, it's not by our own power, but that it's only by your spirit. Make us workers. Cause us to be laborers. Thank you for calling us to be ministers. In Jesus' name. Amen.